looking at verses 26 to 39. Anyone have any prayer requests? So we'll be finishing the chapter, uh, chapter 8 here today. And then, Lord willing, I guess my uncle will take up chapter 9 next week. But let me go ahead and uh, read the first five verses that we're going to be looking at, verses 26 to 30, and then we'll go from there. Romans 8, 26, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness, for when we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Now he who searches the heart hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose, for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. So these verses, particularly 28 to 30, are well-known verses to almost every person in this room. But beginning in verse 26 and 27, I think we have to lump these together. I think we see a continuation of what Paul has already thus far said in chapter 8, specifically focusing on the work of the Spirit. So we see this state that we are in in verse 26, the weakness that we oftentimes as Christians face, even on a daily basis. This verse portrays the continued assertion of the dependency of man upon God in every circumstance. So not only in the good portions of our life, but also we see here in the weakness. And we see in the second portion of this verse, for when we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. The New Geneva Study Bible says this. Let me go ahead and read this what they have a note here. The Holy Spirit strengthens us in our state of weakness, of which we are constantly conscious. Perplexed as to how to pray for oneself is a universal Christian experience. Our inarticulate longings to pray properly are an indication to us that the indwelling Spirit is already helping us. By interceding for us in our hearts, making a request to the Father, He will certainly answer. So we see the work of the Spirit is to help us in our state of weakness. And I think that's a struggle that every Christian has. If you remember the apostles, or the disciples, excuse me, in the model prayer, asked Jesus, Lord, how should we pray? That was a struggle that they had. That's a struggle that we have. Lord, how do we pray? I think every person in here, at many points in our lives, we have difficulties or emotions that we can't even express, especially when it's to the Lord. How do we pray? And it's almost like a deep groaning or a growl or a feeling or a word that you can't verbalize. And what the Apostle Paul is saying here is that that is, if you're a believer, the Spirit making intercession and praying for you. Your prayers don't have to be, uh, don't have to be verbal. They don't have to be outward. It can be a feeling. It can be a groaning or a grunt or a sigh of relief. And I think that's a testament that the Holy Spirit is inside of us. And as the New Geneva Study Bible said, it's when we don't have the confidence of what we don't know what to pray for, I think is evidence that the Spirit is inside of us and working with us to make our prayers to the Father. 
And we see at the end of that, verse 26, the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. Intercession, we see that word quite often used in the New Testament. Intercession meaning on our behalf. The Spirit making request on our behalf to the Father. We see the end of verse, tw- or we see verse 27. Now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is because he makes intercessions for the saints according to the will of God. So how is it that the Spirit makes intercessions for the saints? It's quite simple. It's because he knows what is in our heart. He knows what we're struggling with. He knows our weakness, and he's able to help us with that. He's able to, again, intercede for us, for the saints, according to the will of God. Also pay attention to that, according to the will of God. You see this working again, I think, of the Trinity. What each and every member of the Trinity does, the Spirit helping in our weakness according to the will of God. We have it to where the Spirit helps us in our prayers. The prayers are sent to Jesus Christ. He perfects them and then gives them to the Father, and the Father then dispensates or gives out His grace and blessing and answers our prayers. So you kind of see the working here of the Trinity and the Apostle Paul giving us an idea of what the Spirit does in His job uh, interceding for us. And before we go to verse 28 and 30, anyone have any comments or questions? Yeah. That, that is correct. And maybe if I wasn't quite clear, my version, I have the uh, New King James Version. It says, now he who searches the hearts. And yeah, that, that can be Christ. Um, it, may, it may have been earlier in this chapter. I don't have it on the top of my head. But also, I think in Ephesians, at the end of chapter 1, we have the Spirit of Christ. We also see that, which is the Holy Spirit. You know, So I think it, it's definitely interchangeable. And we see both Jesus Christ and the Spirit both interceding on behalf of the believer. Yeah, correct. Yeah, we see that language where Christ is interceding for us. But I was looking specifically, and like I said, I don't have it on the top of my head what verse it was, but we see the language, the Spirit of Christ. If anyone can find that real quick and uh, what verse that is in the New Testament. I think it's in Ephesians. I think Paul uses that earlier um, but we see that language of the Spirit in Christ, you know, back and forth, and the Apostle Paul uses that. But nevertheless, they're both interceding for us on our behalf. So yes, that's an applicable point, Becky. Thank you for pointing that out. In verse 28, we have, And we know that all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. I think this may be a favorite verse For many people in the Christian world, we see in the beginning of this, and we know, and we know, given what the Apostle has said thus far, the Christian reader has to be well aware 
of what Paul is going to say, or at the most minute level, understand what he is going to say. So up to this point in Romans, we see all this language of how God is helping us and leading us, and in the previous verses, interceding for us. So the logical conclusion would then be that we know that all things work together for good. All things work together for good. I think what's important with this verse is we have to understand, we have to differentiate, this is not the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit saying that all things are good. If we simply said all things are good, then that would completely eliminate the evil that we see around this world. Adam and Eve fell in the garden. That was evil. When Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross by the Jewish leaders and by the Roman government, that was evil. And the Apostle Paul is not calling that good. But what he is saying here is that all things that happen in the life of a believer are for good. They are for good. Let me read this, Acts, 20, uh, excuse me, Acts 2, 23 and 24. I think the prime example of working all things together for good, we see this. This is Peter talking to the Jews. He says, Him being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God, you have taken by lawless hands, have crucified and put to death, whom God raised up, having loosed the pains of death, because it was not possible that he should be held by it. The pinnacle, the prime example of working all things together for good is the death of Jesus Christ. What do we know is we know that Pontius Pilate, we know the Jewish leaders, we know the Jewish crowd, and ultimately Satan, who were all in and behind some way working to put Jesus Christ to death, will answer on the final day for their misdeeds. They will individually be held responsible for killing Christ. But we know throughout the Bible, we know at Revelations 13.8, the lamb slain before the foundation of the world... We know, we see the language here that the Apostle Peter uses, being delivered up by the determined purpose and foreknowledge of God. We know that God was using that evil that those men and Satan transpired to bring Christ to death. God was using that for good. What is the good? It was the good for Jesus Christ to elect a people in and to himself. How it often works I cannot begin to understand it. I cannot begin to explain it. But if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you know that whatever happens to you in your life is for good. Again, that's not saying that it is good, but God is using it for good. I'll give you this illustration real quick. Is uh, If any of you are familiar with, at the end of 50, at, at the end of US 50, you get off 50 and you're getting onto 75. And it's not a very, you know, long lane to be able to merge in to get over the Brent Spence Bridge. And one morning, I'm, as I'm on my way to work, you know, I, I was kind of going through my daily routine. And I'm just merging on. And I said, Lord, I am thankful that you work all things together for good. I didn't get those words out of my mouth. And a huge rock from a pickup truck in front of me came up. And put a huge crack in the bottom of my windshield. I did not get the words out of my mouth. What was the purpose for it? How was good brought out of that? 
I can't exactly say. Maybe the good was is that I used that for an illustration in this Sunday school class that God is sovereign over absolutely all things. It wasn't that because that was good in and of itself, but God is somehow, some way using it together for good. I think each and every Christian in here can think of multiple times in their life excruciatingly difficult, whether it's mental, physical, or spiritual, that we have gone through. And when we're going through it, or even afterwards, we think to ourselves, what was the purpose of that? We may not fully grasp what the purpose of it, but what the Apostle Paul is saying here, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is that it's working together for good. If I pull out of here in Bible Chapel, under rapid run, and a drunk driver hits me, excuse me, I got a little hoarse all of a sudden, a drunk driver hits me, and I become paralyzed. We know that that situation, in and of itself, was not good. That drunk driver will be held accountable for his actions and for his deeds, and I will have to live with the decisions of that man when he hit me. But somehow, some way, we know that God is working that together for good to those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now, let me put this caveat out there, as this is not universal. This is not for the unbeliever. If you're an unbeliever and you don't know Jesus Christ, nothing is working together for your good. All things are actually working against you. So that promotion you get, the wife that you're able to marry, all the blessings in your life are actually to your detriment because you're not giving any praise or any glory to God. You're actually heaping up wrath in the day of wrath when you think all this good is happening to you. This verse is only applicable to the believer. Let me read this. This is actually from a commentary by Charles Bridges on Ecclesiastes. Let me find this comment here real quick. Page 157. I think it's very beneficial, especially when we're looking at the good, or at least looking at how God is working all things together for good. Let me put it in context here. This is the verse. This is Ecclesiastes 7.14. In the day of prosperity be joyful, but in the day of adversity consider... God has set the one over against the other to the end that man should find nothing after him. So we see that God has appointed the day of adversity. He's appointed the day of joy in the life of a believer. And this is what this Charles Bridges says. He quotes another gentleman. Pay attention here. And if anyone says of any affliction, no doubt it is all for my good. Listen here. Let him be reminded to ask himself whether he is seeking to get any good out of it. Are you seeking to get any good out of it? The afflictions and the trials, the difficulties that we have in our life, are you actually seeking to find the good in it? How is God using the difficulty in your life to bring glory to himself and make you more like Christ? How is God using that to bring about good? And I think that's something we need to remind ourselves. Especially in a pessimistic world, I tend to be uh, not an optimist. I tend to be more of a pessimist. That's just my nature. And there's lots of things that we have to be pessimistic about, I think. If we look around our culture, if we look around what's happening around the world, there's a lot of difficulty. There's a lot of trial. There's a lot of changes that have happened in the last 10 years. Who would have known in 2015 gay marriage 
Now we're having transgender drag shows at elementary schools and libraries with kids. That's not stuff to be happy about. But what we know is that somehow, some way, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, God is working all of this chaos, death and destruction for good. Isn't that encouraging? It takes a pessimist into an optimist. At least we know that God's in complete control. Abortion. I can't begin to describe how atrocious, how evil, and how sick abortion is. But somehow, some way, and I can't give you the answer, but God is working the atrocities of abortion for good. That's not saying abortion's good. And those people who commit those evil track, uh, excuse me, evil abortions and who support it will answer to God someday for their atrocities. But somehow, some way, God is working it together for good. We saw that in the garden when Adam and Eve fell in the garden. It was evil. They responded. They were responsible for it. They were di- uh, excuse me, death was brought about for it. But God worked it all together for good. And we see in Genesis 3.15 where it says, Yes, the serpent will bruise the, the, the seed of Eve's heel, excuse me, but he will ultimately crush his head. That's the good that came out of it. And that's what we'll see somehow, some way, God bringing together all things for good. And uh, let me open up my iPad here because it went to sleep. And uh, before I continue, any, I have any comments or questions. Well put. Yes, Dad. this uh, Charles Bridges, he made another comment. He said, it's difficult to carry a full cup. It's difficult to carry a full cup. And I think oftentimes God gives us adversity in our lives to draw us back to him. And just uh, real quick, Ephesians 1.11, also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, we've obtained the inheritance, and we know that Jesus Christ is working all things together after the counsel of his will. And lastly, one of the most important verses, I think, in the Old Testament, Genesis 50, or excuse me, Genesis 50, 19 and 20, Joseph said to them, do not be afraid, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, you meant it evil against me, but God meant it for good in order to bring about for us this day to, set, uh, to save many people alive. I think the greatest, one of the greatest examples in the Old Testament of God working all things together for good is the life of Joseph. Let us continue to verse 29. <clears throat> for whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. Verse 29, foreknew. What is this word for no or for new? What is it? This is not in the sense of God 
And this, you'll often hear this throughout Christendom, especially in the free will or Arminian camp. Some of them will say this. This isn't in the sense of God having to look down the corridors of time. This foreknow is God knowing all things before they happen. Let's just think of it here real quick. If God had to look down the corridor of time to see who would believe, to see who would have faith and who would have repentance, wouldn't that insinuate there was a time where God did not know? If God had to actively look and be contingent upon someone else's will, that would insinuate that there was a time where God did not know. Did the sovereign God of the universe never not know that I was going to be a believer? No, that's ridiculous. This is foreknowledge in the sense that he knows all things before they're going to come to pass, and he knows all who will come to him. Why? Because they're predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that they might be the firstborn among many brethren. Again, we see the firstborn among many brethren. In the previous verses of chapter 8, this inheritance, the heirship, being sons of God, We see that God has elected us to be sons of God. And finally, verse 30, Moreover, whom he predestined, these he also called. Whom he called, these he also justified. And whom he justified, these he also glorified. We see in this process the wonder of God on display in every part of the work of salvation. Not only in pre-salvation, before we're saved, him electing us, But we see during it, he is sustaining us. And finally, he is going to glorify us and all of the saints on the final day of Jesus Christ. Why? Because those whom he has chosen were written in the Lamb's book of life before the foundation of the world. If you ever have difficulty with your salvation, if you're ever struggling with it, whether once saved, always saved, read verse 30. And you will see the whole entire time before, during, and after your salvation here on earth, Jesus Christ, God, is right in the middle of it, protecting you and sustaining you. Excuse me, I don't know why I'm so hoarse. Verse 31, anyone have any comments or questions before we finish that, or after that? All right, continuing on here, last eight verses. Verse 31 What shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? What a fitting conclusion from the previous five verses. If God is for us, who can be against us? I don't know. There's really not much else I can say about that. I can't add anything else. If God's for us, then who can be against us? Well, let me me put this. This is a quote by Charles Ellicott. Who in here is familiar with Cicero? Anyone know who Cicero is? Yeah, Cicero was a great Roman orator. So he was one of the most well-known Roman writers and orators. Oh, thanks. (laughs) Not a surprise. Thank you. But Cicero was a well-known Roman statesman. In fact, uh, it was during his life, almost three-fourths of the literature written in Rome was written by him. An absolute brilliant mastermind. But keep in mind here in verse 31, Charles Ellicott says this, and he quotes Erasmus of Rotterdam, the individual who Martin Luther had his spats with. But Erasmus says this, 
that Cicero never said anything grander. It is needless to add that, setting aside other considerations, Cicero was not for a moment comparable in spiritual intensity and therefore in true eloquence to St. Paul. Especially in this specific verse. If God is for us, who can be against us? There is not any verbiage in all of the human languages that can be combined to compare to that verse for the life of the believer. There's just not. Verse 32, He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also give us freely all things? God delivered up Christ on our behalf. He so loved us, vile, putrid, filthy sinners, that he gave us, excuse me, oh my goodness, he gave us his son, Jesus Christ. If he did that for us, how will he not also give us everything else? How will he not give us everything else? Galatians 1, 4, the apostle writes again, who gave himself for our sins, that he might deliver us from this present evil age according to the will of God and our Father. Delivered him up for us all. How will he not with him also freely give us all things? I don't think that's pertaining to all things that our hearts desires, but all things that God thinks is pertinent to us in our life as a believer. He will give us all things that we need. Verse 34 Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died, furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Because of this, no one created thing or being can bring any charges against God's elect. Let me go ahead and read uh, the New Geneva Study Bible note here on verse 33. The judge has already dealt with all charges against us in the death and resurrection of Christ. Self-justification is futile. Aren't those marvelous words? The judge has already dealt with all charges against us in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. No one can condemn us. No one can have any reviling accusation against us because the judge, the Lord God, has already given it to Jesus Christ and wiped our account clean. There is no condemnation. Again, harken back to verse 1 of chapter 8. There is no condemnation to those of us who are in Christ Jesus. I like uh, one of my favorite songs is My Hope is in the Lord. The third stanza says this, And now for me he stands before the Father's throne He shows his hand, excuse me, he shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. Shows his wounded hands and names me as his own. We also see in verse 34, Jesus Christ, as we looked at uh, verse 26 and 27, how Becky pointed out, the Spirit is making intercession for us. And we also see he... Jesus Christ is making intercession for us. We see it here in verse 34. Who also makes intercession for us. The position of honor and executive authority. There can be no condemnation for us in either sense of the term. If our enthroned sin bearer intercedes for us in heaven. While the Holy Spirit intercedes in our hearts. So maybe that's something... 
we need to remember is that the Holy Spirit is in our hearts interceding for us in Jesus Christ right now, is at the right hand of the Father interceding for us. Interceding, intercession, all over the place. Verse 35 and 36. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine, nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake, we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. I think in this particular section, we'll see in verse 37 and 38, the apostle lists another form really of persecution. But I do think there is a peculiar difference here. I think in this particular section, we see the perils Christians face regarding the physical parts and portions of this world. We see words like tribulation, persecution, sword, famine, nakedness. And I think these are mostly physical depravities. John MacArthur notes in his commentary, The question here, however, is whether they can cause a believer to sin himself out of salvation. In essence... This question is an extension of the one discussed above regarding the possibility of a believer's dislodging himself from God's grace. So we see how the Holy Spirit is guiding us and protecting us. But furthermore, are any of these things listed here in verse 35, are they able to dislodge the believer from the love of Jesus Christ? Now, they can't. It can't be sword. It can't be famine. It can't be persecution. If you will persevere... You will be saved until the end. The apostle in 2 Corinthians 11, he lists, and I won't take time to look there, but he lists all of the difficulties, the depravities, the shipwreckings, the beatings, the scourgings that he's gone under and gone through. None of those things were able to separate him from the love of Christ. They may be difficult. I'm not saying that they're easy. I'm not saying the apostle got up every morning and said, My faith is at 100% today. I'm sure he struggled. Very often. But nonetheless, those physical calamities that befall us, they cannot separate us from the love of God. And then also, who can forget the end of Hebrews 11? Again, it's a chapter that I think is in tandem with chapter 8 here of Romans. The end of chapter 11 of uh, Hebrews, we see the people who were sawed asunder, who were persecuted who were wandering about in goatskins. All throughout, we see these saints in the Old Testament, all of their struggles. There's very few people in the Old Testament that you can really think of their life was easy sailing. Really, the closest one I could think of was David. You know, he was a king and had all the privileges, but, you know, think of Absalom's revolt. You know, he was wandering about in the desert and facing, you know, persecution. Almost all the saints in the Old Testament struggled at one point or another with these physical calamities. And Isaiah was the one who supposedly, the order of King Manasseh was sawn asunder, was sawn in two. So we see the fateful end of so many people in Christ, especially in the Old Testament. That's our lot. But fear not, because that cannot separate us from the love of Christ. And verse 36, I think, is kind of just repeating the same. For your sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep. For the slaughter. And before I finish up these last two verses, anyone have any comments or questions? All right. Verse 38 and 39. I do think, like I said, there are a couple of peculiar differences between the list of 35 and 36 compared to 37 and 38. 
and 39. Let me include 39 in there. So let me go ahead and read them all. Yet in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Verse 37, we are conquerors. We are conquerors. So many famous conquerors throughout human history. Alexander the Great was a great conqueror. Napoleon was a great conqueror. But in the same essence, even grander, as they were great conquerors on this world, we are conquerors, not because of ourselves, but through him who loved us, that is Jesus Christ. How can we be more than conquerors, given all that's mentioned? Because those before us endured until the end, so can we must endure till the end. And why else, and more importantly, is because the triune God is sustaining us. How can we be more conquerors? It is because Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit, and God the Father are sustaining us. Verse 38, and I'll finish up here a couple minutes early. Paul first, and I, and I said the, the differences between 35 and 36 as compared to 38 and 39. Let me give the reason for my thought here. Paul first addresses the physical world in which, in which we live in in verses 35 and 36. So again, we see nakedness and peril and tribulation and distress and famine. Those tend to be more on the physical side of things. But as we read verses 38 and 39, we see that death nor life, angels or principalities nor powers. Yes, those are things that we deal with in this world, but I think they're more of a spiritual nature. Ephesians 1, 20 and 21, we see this. I think this is a great hope, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places. Listen here. Far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only this age, but that age which is to come. And I think not only is it the physical powers of this world, but Paul is mentioning here in Ephesians the spiritual, the dark powers and forces in this world. The first word we see here is death. There is neither death nor life. The last great enemy has no sway over us if we're in Jesus Christ. Who can forget 1 Corinthians 15, 55 and 56? Paul writes, O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. For a believer in Jesus Christ, death has no power over you anymore. And we see life, the spiritual dangers that inhabit this world and are attacking us during our life. So we see life and death. Then we see angels. Angels, and this really, if it's a good angel, is an impossible situation. But let me tell you what I, what I think here at the help of some commentators. An angel, this is an impossible situation. Even the angels in heaven cannot remove the love of Christ from between him and his saints. That would never happen because the angels in heaven are obviously perfected and the evil ones have fallen already. But if you remember in Galatians uh, chapter 1 verses 8, Paul says this, But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. The Paul is 
kind of setting up a hypothetical here, is if he or an angel from heaven, it's not possible, but he's just given a hypothetical here, there to be accursed. And I think probably in a similar situation here, is the apostles giving a hypothetical, even if an angel from heaven could not separate us from the love of Christ. Nor principalities. Principalities, the fallen angels, and the demonic world. Now that is more of a threat to us. I've always found this verse in Daniel quite fascinating. And this is with Michael, the archangel, Daniel 10, 13. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. Then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia. And I think Daniel is talking more here, even more than just the physical power of the the kings of Persia. I think we see in Daniel and other portions of scripture that it's all possible that behind the kingdoms of this world, we have a lot of dark forces, dark fallen angels, and the satanic power. I mean, you see it in Revelation where Satan gathers up all the kingdoms of this world at his command to attack the new Jerusalem. But these principalities, they're nothing against us. Yes, they can cause us physical and spiritual harm, but we have Jesus Christ. No principality can separate us from the love of Christ. Present nor things to come. Things present nor things to come. And I think this is very important. We are often scared of the present realities around us. I think a lot of stuff that's happening right now is quite frightening to us. Things that are also possible in this present age. We're not only frightened of things that are happening now, but I think a natural human fear is that of the future. That's why so many people try to spend time figuring out what's going to happen in the future because there's a fear, there's a fright, there's a uh, fanaticism against things in the future. But even that, things present and things to come cannot separate us from the love of Christ. Let me just read this here real quick. I'm almost done. This is John in Revelation chapter 1 when he sees Jesus Christ. He is fearful. He says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet like a dead man. So John sees Christ and falls at his feet out of fear like a dead man. And Jesus placed his right hand on me saying, do not be afraid. I am the first and the last and the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and of hell. Aren't those encouraging words in times of volatility? As Jesus Christ was the beginning, and he is the end. In verse 39, we read this, Nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What a fitting conclusion to this chapter. To bring it all together and recall to mind that nothing that has been listed, unlisted in this world, physical, spiritual, will be able to separate us from the love of Christ because we are his and he is God and we will be his forevermore. If anyone has any comments or questions, you can see me afterwards. I appreciate your time and that's the end of chapter 8. I think uh, next week Uncle Ray will begin chapter 9 and and good luck.